Is it true? Do you have a force plate test named after yourself? Oh, <laughs> well, apparently I do. So. Yeah, <laughs> If you train for any extended period of time, you know that injuries suck. And what might be even worse than dealing with your own injury is when a client or athlete you coach is dealing with something you just can't figure out. It feels like no matter what you do, you're just treading water. And that's when it's time to bring in the big guns. That's also why I love bringing in specialists onto the show that really hone in on one area of the human body. These people have spent so much time and have so much experience I really feel like they can help all of us get better results with our clients and athletes. And that's why I'm so excited to bring Ben Ashworth on today's episode of the podcast. Ben is a dual qualified shoulder specialist who has over 20 years of experience working with athletes as a physio and strength coach in a wide range of performance environments. Ben has worked in elite rugby at London Wasps, across Olympic sports in the lead up to London 2012, and spent six years as first-team physiotherapist at Arsenal Football Club before his most recent role as performance director in European football. He now runs his own athletic shoulder business, working with Major League Baseball teams and supporting an NFL shoulder injury task force. Additionally, he consults with teams and individuals worldwide based on his original published research and through experience in athletic shoulder testing and training. Ben is currently undertaking a PhD at Liverpool Hope University, looking at the key determinants of throwing performance and the use of a system to optimize athlete health and performance in sports with high shoulder demands. Now, if you're a regular to the show, welcome back. As always, love and appreciate you. And if you're new here, welcome. I'm Mike Robertson, and this is the Physical Preparation Podcast. In this show, we take deep dives into the art and science of coaching, cueing, program design, business, and personal development. Basically, anything to help you become a better trainer, coach, or rehab professional. As someone that deals with injuries on an everyday basis, I love talking to people like Ben and learning more about their approach to assessment, program design, and coaching. So in this episode, Ben and I are going to take a deep dive into the shoulder. We'll start by talking about his overarching philosophy and big rocks when it comes to shoulder training, and then start drilling down from there. For instance, what does Ben's shoulder assessment look like? And how in the heck did he get a force plate named after himself? We'll talk about why mobility, strength, and coordination are all key elements of a healthy shoulder, and how to start developing each in your programs. In one of my favorite parts of the show, we dive into the topic of strength and how much is enough. What kind of strength ratios really matter? And why are both maximal force production and rate of force development critical in keeping the shoulder healthy? As you can imagine, there's a ton of great information in this episode that's going to help you better understand why your clients and athletes might be dealing with shoulder issues. So we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll jump into this awesome episode with Ben Ashworth. Today's episode of the Physical Preparation Podcast is brought to you by Hawken Dynamics. Hawken Dynamics consider themselves part of the process, not the process. Force plates are in no way, shape, or form new technology but Hawken has brought them to the 21st century. Hawken Dynamics plates are wireless, which makes them portable and easy to set up and use. You'll have the ability to performance test your athletes in a matter of seconds and give them immediate feedback on their strengths and weaknesses. 
And last but not least, their software interface is clean, intuitive, and easy on the eye, so both you and your athletes can visualize what's going on and how to improve their performance. Now, the reason I invested in Hawken Dynamics Force Plates was simple. I was tired of feelings and subjective information being the sole driver of my decision-making process. At this point in my career, I want a blend of both subjective assessments and objective-driven metrics to drive my program design. I love the idea of having dual force plates so you can see side-to-side -side differences and asymmetries, especially in athletes who are in the return-to-play process. I want to be able to collect and track data across the athletic spectrum, from our young kiddos to my elite athletes that are playing in the NBA or MLS. Another driver for me was finding ways to assess performance that aren't reliant on lifting technique. While I would never bring a kid in and test their 1RM squat or deadlift on day one, I have zero issue putting them on force plates to test their power in a vertical jump or their force output in a mid-thigh pull or iso squat. But arguably the biggest driver for me was being able to take all of this technology and making it incredibly easy to use. With options to lease or buy, Coupled with a five-year warranty, I'm confident that Hawken Dynamics Force Plates can take your performance facility to the next level. To learn more, head over to hawkendynamics.com or follow them on Instagram at hawkendynamics. Or for direct sales inquiries, feel free to reach out to Drake Berberay directly at drake at hawkendynamics.com or follow him on Instagram at strength2.speed. Ben. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much for coming on. Really excited to chat with you here today. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I can. Thanks. It's a pleasure to come on, by the way, to come on the show. Thanks for the invitation. Um, I am a, well, I'll start with the technical stuff and the, the professional side. I'm a physiotherapist. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine just minutes before, and it's 1997 I graduated. So it's, uh, oh, wow. it's a long time. A long time in the trenches yeah and so yeah I, I kind of stayed a traditional physio for a number of years and then i transitioned from being a physio into into a physio coach if you like someone who was interested in injury prevention as well as as well as rehabilitation sure and then in the sort of last few years i've ended up being in charge of a team so i've become more of a performance director and then I transitioned back to the UK where I'm now building my own business. So that in a nutshell is is uh, <laughs> 20 odd years. <laughs> in, in like one and a half minutes. So, yeah. so so talk to me, what what brought you into the world of physical preparation? Like how did you get into this? What was your start like? Yeah, so uh, I think the first, um, the first opportunity to work in elite sport was 2002. I, I worked in professional rugby and it was a academy position for one of the leading rugby teams in the country. So I was very fortunate. Uh, London Wasps is the, the team. And I worked there with some brilliant people. Um, and, and it actually was almost too early for me in my career. I didn't really know what I knew or didn't know. And, sure. and so I worked with some pretty exceptional strength and conditioning coaches and coaches who are still in the public domain today, plus some like leading players. So that was my sport and therefore it was interesting, exciting, but I don't think I really turned my attention to my career until I finished at Wasps and I started working in, um, in Olympic sport. Okay. 
and Olympic sport was where I really started to turn towards not just being a physio, but looking at all aspects of of how we could support an elite performer. And I would work in a rehab institute with strength coaches, psychologists, nutritionists, physiologists. And so my own sort of limited understanding was, okay, I wasn't a bad physio, but there were more things out there that could help me progress. Mm -hmm. And so that was probably the first time I started looking at, you know, strength and conditioning, although I wasn't responsible for programming. But because of the ability to work hand in hand with good people, I then started to look towards that and ended up um, doing some stuff towards, I think it's 2011, 2012, around a master's in strength and conditioning. And that was really where it all came together. So in 2009, I was in charge of uh, British judo team as the physio working with them. We had a lot of injuries related probably to like weakness, lack of strength, force production, rather than range of motion, movement pattern. Right. You know, this is, these are combat athletes fighting people and throwing people their own body weight or trying to rip the head, up, head off. <laughs> so you can't really work with groups like that or rugby players without a real understanding of building some resilience um, exposing them to the right levels of training and, and physical preparation. I, I think that's became a natural transition and evolution that through experience and through an understanding of my own limitations and working with, you know, people who are much more prepared to, to offer that to their, to the athletes that we were working with. I wanted to explore that myself and develop those areas myself. Yeah. So last but not least, what got you so interested in shoulders? Was it just these judo athletes slamming into the ground repeatedly and do, doing who knows how much damage? Like what, what got you so interested in the shoulder itself? I think that was exactly it. Like I already had an interest in shoulders from rugby. And then I ended up being in charge of this program where 24% of the injuries were knees and 23% were shoulders. Mm. And so every day I was working with four or five shoulder, you know, uh, injuries or rehabs. And I was in an organization where we shared a lot. So within the English Institute of Sport, someone would be working with Taekwondo or they'd be working with boxing and they'd call you up because you were the person who probably knew a bit about shoulders and you do one, you help with one, and then you become a little bit better at it. And that's literally how it grew to the point where I got together with a colleague of mine, Ian Horsley, and he and I put together some courses in the early stages and we put our stuff out there and people seemed to like it. And to be able to teach about a shoulder is way different to be able to just, you know, support an athlete with a shoulder problem right. and start having to add value. And at, at that point, I think around 2009, again, was that sort of perfect marriage of trying to teach, also trying to impact on a program where shoulders were a big prevalent time loss injury. And, and yeah, that's where it all started. I love it. So obviously we're going to talk about shoulders here today. It's kind of your wheelhouse. <laughs> so I want to start with a really general question first, and then we can get into some nuance and some details. But you and I both know all shoulders are unique, and there's always context when it comes to shoulder training. But I'd love to start with your overarching principles or your foundational beliefs, if you will, when it comes to the shoulder and shoulder training? 
Yeah, I mean, so it, it helps that I've just put all this together, which we'll talk about, yeah. um, which we'll talk about shortly. But so fundamentally, I come from a place of an outcome driven approach. What I found by looking at all these different boxes, buckets, pillars, whatever you want to call them, is that when you break the shoulder down into key things, mobility, strength is a loose term, but strength. Sure. And kind of coordination, control, um, sequencing, timing, those three different aspects. The, th the reason and the limiting factors for people um, in terms of performance and in terms of reducing likelihood of injury seem to reside largely within this force production box or strength box. Mm -hmm. And that becomes the key limiting factor most of the time with athletes and athletic performers or people with high shoulder demands. So because of that, then my overriding philosophy is, of course, to look at all of the components. But the real the real sort of key to it is looking at force production, not just peak forces, but also balanced force across the joint in terms of force transfer. And then on top of that, the kind of important, probably the most important thing, which is relatively recently developed in shoulders is uh, rate of force development. So if we can look at force production, balanced force transfer and rate of force development, I think that really summarizes the critical components of performance and injury prevention in athletes. Um, but at the same time, of course, it's not one size fits all. It's not blinkered. It accepts that there are these other areas which we need to look at in terms of preparation and in terms of kinematics, tissue health, diagnostics, sure. pathology, you know, that, that also feed into that, that system. Okay. How you're on Instagram, right? You've got a pretty, pretty nice little IG page I've seen. How different is that from what we see when, you know, a lot of the stuff on IG or just social media when it's about shoulders, it's shoulder health, shoulder mobility. Here's like these five different band exercises. I mean, you're literally on the opposite end of that spectrum. And it's not to say those things aren't important, but that's a lot different message than what I think a lot of the population is getting. I think it's about, um, as, a, as I said, again, I'm not dismissing those things. I just sure. think through my own experiences and biases, I, I, I end up focusing in on those things because maybe as well i'm i'm the person that people come to when they've tried mobility and they've tried coordination and they you know they've moved moved a thousand times with a band yeah and it doesn't seem to it doesn't seem to make them better and then you put a weight in their hands and they go oh that feels different i genuinely think that people who aren't working every day with shoulders are reluctant to load shoulders because of dispelling a, a lot of common myths and you know and that's the fact that you know if you load a shoulder then uh and you know all these powerful muscle groups are going to take over and the underlying muscles just will stop working and then you'll have a really unstable joint that's being pulled around well right. yeah that's that's not right so i think there's always a place for mobility and that tends to be preparing tissues for work sure so you know getting rid of the fuzz in the mornings to get you ready to have enough active and passive range of motion to then be able to perform the sport is important because if you don't have enough range to be able to produce that force 
that can be a limiting factor. But most of the time, you know, um, mobility will form part of a warm up for me. But generally speaking, it will be four or five minutes max. Yeah. Um, and most of it will be activation, loads, potentiation, style preparation. Very cool. Okay, so walk me through your shoulder assessment. Like everybody listens to this show, right? From trainers and coaches, rehab professionals. What are like the primary tests that you're looking at when you're evaluating someone's shoulder? Yeah, I, I mean, I can think of today. So I saw a I saw a guy today who's a who's a very good rugby player, um, young young guy, nineteen year old. So I was in the physio room, clinic room, on the bed initially, taking a history where we looked at all those different things. We talked about the potential for what was going on. We listened to the diagnostics and the scans he'd had, and we put that picture together. Then we performed a clinical exam, which you know took about 25, 30 minutes. But then we moved from that and we took the salient pieces of that around, has he got joint instability? And are there any key positions where he's got limitation, either in terms of apprehension or maybe he lacks an ability to access a good start position, for example. But beyond that, then we looked at force production. So we looked actually today with a dynamometer. So we looked at external versus internal rotation force in a position of abduction uh, with a neutral rotation. And we're looking there at peak force in internal and external rotation. And then we're looking at the ratio between yeah. front to back. And that even on its own, gave me a load of information based on what he was doing and looking at where he might have a deficit. And then if you put all that together, you see, well, actually, the program that he was given was probably a really good program for the initial time when he developed this injury. But he's hammered that program religiously. And now he's almost just going too far in <laughs> too far in one direction and, okay. and the shoulders very direction specific and unless you target things with specific loading it's very difficult to move the needle on rotator cuff force production as an example right um and so i didn't go through my full repertoire of assessment i'd found enough from history clinical and some quick tests of force without even having to dive into some of the other stuff that i enjoyed diving into to be able to say, right, well, let's start with this. Let's set you off with these things and see if we can change that over the next week or so. We'll talk to your, we'll talk to your team, listen to what they've got to say and in their input, see if we can tweak that program and then we'll get you back and we'll have a look at a few other things in a couple of weeks' time, which never wanting to overcomplicate it for the athlete, it seemed quite simple that we'd found this one thing that other people had. Right. You know, what's interesting about that too is with all your years of experience, you can go in and you can make some of those quick decisions and skip some steps versus, you know, when you're just starting out, it's really helpful to have kind of that systematized, I'm going to do the range of motion tests and I'll do the apprehension tests or whatever your sequence is. And you go through it religiously until you're really comfortable with it. And then when you get to a certain level, that's where you can be like, okay, I've already seen these three things here that tells me I need to go to this. And so it just, the, the value of reps and experience can't be understated in cases like this. Yeah, the value of it's very valuable until such time as you get a complex problem where you have skipped a few steps. And yeah. then 
what's what's really important at that point is you recognize you've done that and you go back <laughs> yes. to basic principles and you go of course i missed that test out that i would normally have done and that was probably the key piece of information i was missing so some of us have the luxury of having as much time as we like and when i worked in elite sport i had as much time as i liked so i could do an assessment i could assess all day if i liked but now i'm working and having to be a bit more focused and i'm trying to set up systems that work and give me the maximum amount of information for the minimum amount of time i have to be a little bit more targeted about you know not adding in testing for testing sake or yes creating more noise than probably signal around assessing someone because ultimately it's like well, what are we going to do with this information anyway sure sure i mean that's what so, really moves the yeah. needle right okay yeah i can't wait to hear this is it true do you have a force plate test named after yourself oh <laughs> yeah um well, apparently I do. So, yeah, it's, it's... <laughs> I mean, way to be humble about it. I'm just saying this is like every strength coach's dream is to have an exercise named after themselves. And you have a force plate test, the ash test named after yourself, correct? Yeah. Uh, firstly, it was a group of us who problem solved, brainstormed around this in the first instance. Okay. So there were some guys at Saracens Rugby Club. So Paddy Hogben, Laura Tullock, Daniel Cohen, who is a force platform legend and then Nav Singh, who's a sports scientist. So all of us together trying to solve a problem. And yes, it was me that designed the test having a think. And then when we put it to review, actually a good friend of mine, Jeremy Lewis, um, he suggested that it's probably not the best thing to do now to name a <laughs> test up. So, but I completely, ignore, I completely ignored him <laughs> and it's worked. It's sort of worked as a spin off bit of a marketing tool. And I've got some, I don't think I've got any bad press over it that I've heard. I well, generally got this. Yeah, I generally got this. Hey, by the way, this is Ben. And he created the ash test and he's here showing us it today. So it's been, it's been well received. I love it. Yeah. So tell us about the test. What is the test? What does it do? What does it look at? Yeah, it's the sort of missing piece of the puzzle for shoulders. So we do a lot of short lever tests. People push weights in close to them and they move them really well but there's two usps to the test the two usps are the long lever so it's a three different position hard isometric um force platform test you're you're lying on your front for those of you who haven't seen it it's all over my in instagram and i'm sure we can link to it in the show notes but yes. essentially it's in a t position a y position and an i position and not only do you push as hard as you can but you push as fast as you can so we're trying to capture the other usp which is rate of force development sure so that's that's the test and people think it's a shoulder test but it's it's actually a force transfer test across the shoulder girdle from the base of support so you know when we look at a hamstring isometric we'll call it a hamstring test or when we look at a groin squeeze we'll call it a groin squeeze but it's still force transfer across the anterior pelvis for the groin sure. squeeze. It's still force transfer across posterior chain if it's the hamstring. So a number of reasons why you might not be able to push hard into the platform that don't reside solely around the ball and socket. Yeah. Wow. And that's the interest of it. Yeah, that's the interest behind it. Uh, and I'm just thinking, I mean, obviously, any kind of 
upper body throwing sport, right? Like a baseball or a softball, but I'm thinking uh, things that aren't necessarily as exciting here or not as popular, but like javelin throwers, cricket bowlers, you know, all of these things where they've got that really long lever, massive application there, right? Yeah. And again, I, I think like we said before, I'm, I'm hugely humbled by the fact that we started at this, well, it was, it's a pretty good rugby team in the UK, but since then I've been contacted by different sports, different people from all over the world, people wanting to do master's projects, people working with elite teams, Olympic sports, weightlifting, Olympic throwing, um, you know, tennis, handball. It, it doesn't matter. Anybody, as I say, who's got high shoulder demands. I even had a call recently. I was doing a West Coast America trip and I was on my way down to Las Vegas and I got a call from a trapeze artist mm. who, whose wife had a shoulder injury and he'd searched everywhere for stuff that replicated this kind of catch position overhead that yeah. she was getting into. And he'd found the ash test, emailed me and <laughs> I ended up going around and assessing his his wife and talking him through it the next day in the middle of a uh, their place in Las Vegas. So it's, that's awesome. It's opened a lot of doors. It's opened a lot of doors. That's very cool. Okay, so once we've assessed our clients or our athletes, the next step is obviously evaluating that data and interpreting what we see. So really interested to hear what metrics are most important to you when it comes to shoulder health and performance. I feel like you've talked about it a little bit already, but what metrics are most important for you? I think that I'm I'm never one to shy away from having an opinion on stuff. I mean, I, there's for years people sort of like to say, well, it depends, it depends. Well, yeah. no, let, let's let's start drawing some lines in the sand. So when we look at peak force around shoulders, if we take the ash test, for example, we've built a huge amount of information now from different athletes, different teams, different sizes of individual, male and female, and different ages. So we can, if you test using the ASH test and you're working with a team of like young female tennis players, for example, we've got some data that we can start to, to use as a, as a start point for a conversation. Equally, the other day we had a master's tennis player, veteran master's, and he said, look, you know, you've given me some standards here, but I'm way below them. Of course I am, I'm 60, 63. Sure. But if we have a start point for that conversation, um, and in baseball now, we've got thousands of ash tests, you know, with high level baseball, like pitchers, we've got a huge amount of information on uh, internal and external rotation, force frame data and information. And, and that's starting to be more publicized um, through companies like Vald, as an example, who, who have this opportunity to work with a load of those teams and are able to bring the identified data together to say, well, these are your kind of averages and this is your your top 5%, your bottom 5%. So the key markers is, that we know, like if you're a if you're an elite level baseball pitcher, you're doing a force frame test as an example, or probably a dynamometer internal or external rotation force test, you're looking at around 170 newtons of external rotation and 180 newtons of internal on average. Okay. And we know a ratio is around ER to IR of 0.85 to 0.91. Okay. But it does matter how you do the test, 
the position you test in, you know, the, the conditions have to remain the same for you to be able to say that those ratios are relevant. And then we know with the ash test that, you know, 200 newtons in an eye position is a pretty good score to aim for. But of course, if you're, you know, like 100 kilograms <laughs> and you're pushing 200 newtons versus a 75 kilogram athlete pushing 200 newtons, there's a difference. So we also look at the the relative to body weight scores. Okay. Um, and we sort of use both of those as a guide. We look at absolute and relative values to see is someone sitting in and around the right sort of level um, or is there room for improvement? Are they weak or strong? Yep. And then there's the weak or strong and then there's the explosive or not. And maybe in baseball, it's twitchy or not, like mm. the, the buzzword. Yes. But, but explosive or not, strong or not. And if you're not strong, you need to get stronger. But if you're strong and not explosive, you need to get more explosive. And that's the way you try and move the needle based on the results. Yes. I mean, it's so simple when you think about it like that. Really, like it really is simple, but to have like numbers to base this off of and to drive some of our decision making versus, you know, the eye test, right? Like, oh, no, I just think he's not whatever. I don't think she is this. Like, that's what it comes down to is now we're starting to have more concrete numbers, assuming you're standardizing everything and trying to make it repeatable. But yeah, we're going to start having real numbers to drive some of these decisions. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. You know, if we're going to test force, like if we're going to do a manual muscle test, why not put a, a score on it? Yes. You know, why not? And I suppose then it comes back to picking the key positions that are relevant to the athlete population that you're working with. It's also based on the evolution of your team to be able to deal with those data points. And I suppose then like the interpretability, do you have enough to be able to turn around that data to have an impact really quickly? So there's lots of lots of layers to putting in place a good monitoring system. I, and I think as well, like it has to be scalable. So I went to do a course um, in Vancouver and there was a guy there working with some development youth baseball players. And he said, well, I don't have a dynamometer. I don't have any force plates. So this is all very interesting, but I'm not going to have a budget for it. So what do I do? So when we were looking at external rotation strength, we just looked at a standard ISO hold in the scapular plane against the wall and said, well, what weight can they hold? This is a 15-year-old throwing athlete. We know how, what their body weight is. Let's have a look at how many kg, how many pounds they can hold there for 10 seconds and what's their score out of 10 for that. And then we can start to quantify using you know, readily available weights and start to say, well, actually, compared to the rest of the group, he's strong or she's weak. or yes. And then we can start to put a program in place that moves the needle on them. And then ultimately, really, the reason why we do it is so we can say, well, we strength isn't the limiting factor. Yes. Yeah. And therefore, it must be coming from somewhere else. And that's where it becomes, again, quite simple is, OK, we've, we've got this person stronger, but there's still a problem. So then we have to dig into kinematics, coordination, the neural system, you know, underlying pathology, tissue health, all those other aspects that might be creating the problem. But it's a very good, easy to evidence start point for a conversation. Well, and like you alluded to, not every group 
that you interact with is going to have all of the bells and whistles that you would have at high-level rugby clubs, high-level EPL clubs. So, I mean, I just think that's a brilliant, low-level way to start at least bucketing your athletes, right? You know, below average, average, above average. And then you can start to, from there, dictate and write better programs. And that's actually kind of where I wanted to go with my next question because, you know, I think you and I would both agree assessments are great. But what's most important is how those assessments drive and kind of dictate what we're going to do later on in our program. So with people like you that are very good at assessing, I love hearing your process. So from assessment to interpretation to program design, what does that look like for you? How do you go from that assessment process to putting it on paper and executing it? Yeah. Um, well, we've set up some, I suppose, pretty nice capture systems now. Um, I've done some work with a developer, actually, over the past year to make things easy and efficient for me personally. I, I do use the software that's available in some of the systems that I that I work with, and that's becoming better and better. But ultimately, it's like, okay, well, these are the key things. These are the key performance indicators for injury and for performance. Here's the one pager. It's, it's as you say, poor, good, very good or excellent. You know, and if it's poor, how do we move the needle? So in terms of putting a program in place, rather than being very prescriptive, we can say, well, these are the exercises you need to do if you are... If you've got a big deficit and you don't have an opportunity to expose yourself to something that's going to be a stimulus to move the needle more than once a week, it's going to take you a hell of a long time <laughs> to change that. Sure. Right? Yeah. Versus, you know, small deficit, you're doing it three times a week. Okay, well, we're going to see progressive and rapid change. So that means that what we do is we just go, right, start point A, intervention, retest, close the loop. Have we moved the needle? Yes. Brilliant. The program's working. You're now, you've now moved from weak to strong. The question is, when are you strong enough? But I think based on what we see across a number of athletes now, we know when people are hitting some pretty good scores. And then are they then explosive enough if that's what we need to look at next? So this becomes very simple and you basically fit into squares on a quadrant yeah yeah and we try and move you from being weak and unexplosive to being <laughs> strong and explosive and we're, we're pretty happy with doing that and then really whatever program works work, works whatever program moves the needle you know who am i to tell you you must do it this way it doesn't matter because we've got a good test that we trust which is telling us that you're better yep and then it then it's about okay well Force and rate of force are good. So we do actually need to put that into function. We do need to get some transfer into the sport. We do need to make sure we create chaos. And there's other aspects to it. Sure. Um, which are more gray and more difficult to to quantify. Yes. You know, it's really interesting because maybe it's the culture that I'm in here and and the way that a lot of us grew up. I feel like maximal force production around the shoulder uh, has been less of an issue, right? I mean, I remember being the young guy, bench pressing three times a week, uh, maxing out every Friday, because you just never know if you put five pounds on your, uh, your bench press that week. But it's also cool to see this shift away 
from just pure strength, not to say it's not important, but talking more about explosive strength or rate of force development. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on kind of how our, our industry is shifting, at least to some degree in this regard, and why you think rate of force development is such a key piece of kind of keeping the athletic shoulder healthy. Yeah, and you know, we sometimes piggyback, or we're standing on the shoulders of giants, aren't we? we yes. um, there's been some brilliant work of people getting people very strong. But when it comes back to the meaningful actions of sport and the meaningful actions of injury, they all happen in a blink of an eye. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter that someone can bench press, you know, huge amount of weight. They still go out there as a rugby player and they get injured when they have to put down that force quickly in vulnerable positions, you know, perhaps with the chaos of the environment in the sporting arena. So there's so many other factors other than just pure strength that are become relevant. And even when we simplify it and break it down into a long lever and high rates of force development, that's that's not enough. You know, there's people who can do that when they've got time and they can control it and they're consciously activating. But to take the test a step further, and actually, if you're stopping a 100 kilogram guy running through your shoulder, it's not about you consciously making yourself ready. It's an eccentric reactive. Right. Your body might be in a different position. The legs might not be under you, so you can't generate force from the ground. It's far, far more complex than that. So all we're trying to do is go, look, what can we control? If your remit is to get someone strong, I'll say dumbbell bench press, but (laughs) bench press is, you know, moving a heavy weight slowly is going to do that. It's going to move the needle. But if you want to make someone more explosive, you can look at max strength. You can look at max intention but ultimately we're going to end up with stuff that needs to switch things on quickly. Take the lower body taps, contact times. You know, when we're looking at drop jumps, we're looking at those, those time frames. We're really comfortable with looking at windows of under 250 milliseconds. But when we go to the shoulders, suddenly we have a blind spot and we say, well, you know, why, why would, why would we start to put rates on a shoulder or why would we, it, it's, it's because, Traditionally, it hasn't been done. And so the industry is moving in that direction as more people start to explore how this can help. And I think that's because, like me, I ended up in a place with a group of other people trying to solve a problem. And the answer wasn't strength. Yes. It was something else. And that's the way we went with it. And I'm sure now we'll end up somewhere which is more around reactive strength. But then the difficulty, and I I know I'm waffling now, but the the difficulty with that is when you're trying to test something, it becomes more and more difficult, the more chaotic and more close to the actual sport it becomes. Sure. And so there's almost this point where we're unable to quantify it. And I've got an answer for that, but I'll let you, (laughs) I'll let us simmer on that one for a moment. So let's take this a step further because if somebody is, you know, thinking, oh, this is something I should be incorporating. First off, I'll tell them to go to your IG page because I know you put up uh, numerous examples here. But for somebody that's not done this type of explosive upper body work, could you give a couple examples, like activities you might try and use to try and improve this rate of force development around the shoulder? Yeah. So actually, one of the warm-ups we, we do is we stand in a door frame 
So instead of getting the athlete to lie on their front while they're testing, we actually just get them to warm up in a door frame in those long lever positions and just firstly push hard and then push fast. Right. So they're used to switching on things quickly, perhaps in longer lever positions. Um, previously, before I used to quantify stuff, I'd use, you know, uh, med ball throws against trampoline. I'd use some uh, deceleration with a with a small med ball. We'd look at catching. One of the exercises I use from a reactive perspective is a is in a T position and they're holding a cable, and then we let go of the cable and they have to prevent displacement of the shoulder going behind them. So very similar to sort of try and replicate that tackle of someone running through your arm. But we'll start there with them doing that themselves under their own volition. And then we'll build to a place where we take vision out and we have, you know, a coach holding the cable and then letting it go mm. without the person knowing. So even within that one simple position, we can manipulate that position to challenge it in a number of different ways that we can progressively load towards the point which is as close to where it's going to end up in a game without it being in a game itself. Right. I love that. And I, I like, I feel like there's a lot of value in activities such as that where there's like the core activity and then there's all these micro progressions you can build along the way to try and smooth that and make it as user friendly for the athlete as possible. Uh, I want to circle back because I had I did have one question. When you were talking about the ash test, when you do this, do you do a max effort version and an RFD version, or do you just do it all at once? Yeah, that's a very insightful question. So um, to get the best of both worlds, we use a three second rep. Okay, and that way we get very good peak forces and we get pretty good rates of force development. Yep. But if you want to target rates of force development only, we've used a one second rep or as okay. short a rep as you can. Yep. Um, and we almost coach like punching your hand through the floor as well. It's, oh, it's, yeah. Cueing makes a big difference to whether you're going to get good results on rate of force development. Oh. Yeah. Well, because I do that with like an isometric mid-dive pull. And, yeah. you know, if you're coaching a max effort, it's push as hard and as fast as you can. And if you do an RFD version, it's push as fast and as hard as you can. So... That yeah. subtle change in language does seem to make an impact. So, The guy who researched that, actually, is called Nick Maffioletti. Okay. And, and he's got a 20-page paper on rate of force development and getting the best out of rate of force development. So I phoned him up okay. um, through a colleague and had a, just the best 60, 60 minutes for someone who's geeking out on RFD. <laughs> Never have. Yes. But he... he said that to me he said look this this is the way to get the best out of this but actually if you want the best rfd it's as short a rep as as you can so mm, interesting yeah i had uh paul comfort on <laughs> a while back and he's like the isometric mid-dive pull guru right now and so now every time i try and set somebody up for one i just think would paul comfort approve of my setup on this this imtp so he's always kind of in the back of my brain but okay you say uh you say it's very interesting, but actually, I'm sure there's not many people in the world who spend their evenings <laughs> thinking about force development. Right. Like I, yeah. I sometimes want what I'm doing, but yeah. Yeah, I, I, I'm a nerd, man. I like to think about this stuff. So, uh, so I'm going to mix this show up a little bit because 
We're talking about shoulders, so I'm actually going to do two lightning rounds with you. And this first one is exclusively going to be about shoulders and shoulder training. So my first question is, and your, your answer can be as long or short as you like, but my first question is, what is shoulder stability? And I'm using air quotes for those of you that can't see that. Shoulder stability is joint reaction force. So it is the balance between overpull and underpull. Overpull of other muscles and underpull of the rotator cuff. Mm. And it's based off good structure and then good function. Wow. That's it. Wow. I, re I really like that. I used to always uh, explain the rotator cuff. It's like a tractor beam. That's how I would explain <laughs> it to uh, the interns. And they're like, oh, they kind of got it then. So I like your answer better, though. If they don't know what a tractor <laughs> beam is, it'll make more sense. Okay, number two. Do you see any role for unstable surface training for the shoulder? And if so, when? Uh, when I go into a team to do a workshop, they surprise me with a player to assess. And they've already done everything and tick force and every other box. And the guy's still got problems. And then I'm happy to be able to go down an unstable route. And in fact, that's the thing that moved the needle. But unstable approach or using unstable surfaces or, or instability or that kind of challenge probably comes from a place of uh, a lack of joint feedback. Mm. And so if we see someone who's got, and I don't use this all the time, but some uh, difference in joint angle reproduction, some signs that they've got a lack of joint feedback or awareness of position, it doesn't matter how big the muscle is, you know, or how explosive it is that, neural system is a key part of why they're breaking down. So that's when we go down the route of making things unstable, sticking earrings on, on benches, yeah. bamboos, bamboo bars and all the rest of it. And we just focus down that route. But I think there's a place. I, I also think in rehab, you've got a time to challenge people in different ways. And sometimes sure. that's to, to take them out of the comfort zone of being able to fix and be rigid Yes. Because um, the shoulder is an area you can cheat like mad, right? Yes. Yes. Compensating. Well, yeah. I, I just feel like some of these are, I don't want to say hot button topics, but they're, they're questions that a lot of people have. You know, what does shoulder stability mean? Uh, you know, a lot of people like suspension trainers. They like flipping that BOSU ball over and doing push-ups. So I think a lot of people are just wondering like, oh, what's, where is the utility and, and the value in this? Or you know, is it just mixing things up, right? That's another another thing that trainers and coaches love to do is just mix things up. But okay, how can we do that, but still producing a safe and effective outcome for the people we're training? Yeah, and that's the place I came from, a place where I had a real freedom to experiment. And I had, don't worry, I had athletes standing single leg on bozus doing all sorts <laughs> of fun. Yeah. Um, but I've ended up sort of channeling it more towards being quite specific and so if it is around the neural system and joint feedback then we need to do something that challenges that if we're looking at end-stage rehab and we're creating some chaos and looking at challenging displacement yep when we've already ticked the other boxes then again it's it's probably appropriate gotcha yeah. gotcha okay number three really excited for this one because it always gets a lot of play are there any bad shoulder exercises Right, the bench press. <laughs> <laughs> oh my! We everybody's turning the show off right now. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that was that was deliberately uh, throwing a grenade in there. I think um, 
so yeah I, I mean there no no is the answer because even the empty can which is a bad exercise by the way that that's probably my only bad exercise the empty can but i've used the empty can because i had an athlete that had to get in to that position and then create talk from that position so mm. we had to go there um i had a judo player who ended up in a it's another name test an o'brien's test position which is here on someone's collar internal rotation for those who can't see me um and again it's a horrible position biomechanically it puts things in a bad place it puts muscles at longer muscle lengths at ruins lengths ten tension relationships but ultimately you might have to go there so yeah there's no such thing as a bad exercise apart from the empty cam wow okay i like it all right big question time my friend if you could alter the space-time continuum and give young ben ashworth one piece of advice what would it be wow that's a great that, that is that is a is a great question i'll have to think of that one i think my uh, no that's the thing it's nothing to do with technical it is more about get to work with good people like search out seek out the opportunity to work with good people and you know i came through thinking i was you know the mutt's nuts as we'd say <laughs> um and quickly found that i wasn't but probably didn't pass the ball a lot through a number of things like you know, fear of being found out fear of not knowing fear of not being good enough all those other bits where you probably don't ask as many questions as you need to ask sure and then you realize at some point you become maybe wise or or things aren't working for you and you're butting your head up against walls and then you start to say well actually what's what's so bad about asking people and so as soon as i started to ask people as soon as i started to work with good people it was probably the best thing i ever did and i probably came to that way too late in my career like you know for the last 15 years i think i've been doing that but because i've been in the game for about 25 now <laughs> um the first 10 i was probably not passing the ball so that's the thing work with good people and ask a lot of questions yeah fantastic advice okay last but not least we've got our real lightning round now so i believe i got okay. five questions here for you Let's start with a fun one. Talk to me about this new course you just dropped. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's the Athletic Shoulder Level 1 course. It's eight hours of video content online with two hours of extra work to take you through and apply the knowledge and the learning. It's in partnership with Alex Wolf, who's a strength and conditioning coach with a throwing background and a big history himself in, in strength and conditioning in, in the UK. Um, and it's out in February and it's released now available online and you can search the link at the end of this and, and, and have a look. But I think the most important thing about it is it's bringing together about 20 years of experience between the two of us. And it's not a normal way of learning. It's not a teach you, teach you, teach you it's uh okay here's some content now apply it and then layering on each system so we look at foundational principles around an outcome driven approach we look at functional anatomy then we look at testing and tracking which is where everything starts to get pieced together but then the so what factor of what happens if something goes wrong and you've got pathology or what do we do with exercise prescription and that's how we brought this first course together, which is hopefully the first of many. 
I love it. I'll make sure I get the link in the show notes because it looks <laughs> great. It looks really good. Okay. Thanks. Really excited about this one. Number two, how does a shoulder guy end up working in the EPL at Arsenal? How does that happen? Money. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Truth bomb right there. Yeah, no, it's, um, it was also at the end of uh, a long kind of Olympic, I think seven years working in Olympic sport and got to a point where you know, needed a new challenge and and I was very fortunate. I applied for a job before the London 2012 Games and I managed to land this job in football, which is unheard of for someone out, outside of football or, or at least very difficult at that time. Sure. Um, so that's how it happened, yeah. Wow, very cool. Number three, I love talking about random things that you put in your bio and stuff. So how often do you get to ski this year? So I, I will, we've booked a ski holiday. So family and I have booked a ski holiday for December at the end of the year. Okay. Um, definitely try and get away once a year as a family. And it just so happened that one of the clients I've been working with in the early part of this year um, got me out to Switzerland a few times. Oh, wow. And there was some down, there was some downtime within that where he encouraged me to get out on the slope so i've actually been skiing and i've never i'd never skied in switzerland before so um if my wife's listening yeah okay i didn't tell you about it but <laughs> i did it uh, <laughs> i love it i love it number four family highlights for 2023 so far about a quarter of the way through the year yeah um this is in some ways this is like disappointing because you know i've taken a very family first uh, approach now trying to build an own business but I asked my daughter this question uh you know what are we what have you most enjoyed this year and she said literally we went we had like a a time together we went to a hobby craft we we spent her voucher from Christmas and we had a coffee and she had a frappuccino so it's it's the simple things it's the Sunday lunches and the normal weekends and the dog walks those yep. are the those are the bits that We've actually all enjoyed because I've been living away from home for the last three years. Oh, yeah. With my job. So all those normal things now are just great for us. But we've got these things positioned throughout the year, like a nice holiday in the summer and a skiing holiday in the year to look forward to. So that's awesome. Yeah. Good for you, man. Yeah. It's I've got a lot of friends in the professional ranks and I know it's hard. So very good for you to kind of come full circle and now have that extra time. But Last but not least, number five, man. What's next for Ben Ashworth? What are you working on? What are you excited about? Yep. Um, I've got three strands to my business and it's sort of organically grown. So I've got the learning uh, and online and learning and also in-person courses. And that's going really nicely. Then there's the in-person rehabilitation. So in London, a couple of clinics that I work from, um, and a shared gym wellness space with performance equipment. So again, that's brilliant. Yeah. Got some people starting to work for me there and trying to build an athletic shoulder uh, system um, or at least formally put it out there. We've built it for the last seven years, but sure. now it's like, let, let's go, let's push the go button. Um, and then the, the last bit is the passion projects, the ability to work with elite level teams. So, so far this year, I've ended up working with 
I'll try not to name drop circus <laughs> performers circus performers uh two major league baseball teams special forces in the uk and a few other little uh gems that have turned <laughs> up as well and i just think throughout the year now i've got the opportunity to work with some very good high level teams in the uk and also in the us um and that's a lovely portfolio of three different things that keep some variety in there but helps me build a business without actually necessarily the grind of working in elite sport which yeah. i've done for over 20 years yeah well it keeps you switched on right because you've got all these different avenues of learning content creation all of that but like you said too it, it's really hard right like the elite sport life is not for everyone and maybe even if it is for you maybe it's not forever so the fact that you've kind of created this own business for yourself is very very cool man and Man, really appreciate you coming on. This is a fantastic chat. I'm sure everybody enjoyed it. Where can my listeners find out more about you and all the great work you're doing? Yeah, um, look, firstly, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a really great conversation. Um, thoroughly enjoyed it. Great way to spend an evening. <laughs> so www.athleticshoulder.com is my website. Um I run a podcast as well, Informed Performance, which I host with uh, Andy McDonald, another good person I've learned a lot from and is a great, uh, a great individual, great human. But you can get me on Instagram at Athletic Shoulder. Uh, it's probably one of the best places, LinkedIn, you know, and on my website, you've got my actual mobile number. And oh, wow. also, You're and brave. also my yeah my email address so you know like i've never shied away from people who reach out and in fact some of the people who i'm working with now who are going to work for me or with me probably with me is a better way of saying it have come from reaching out over the last seven or eight years very cool yeah very cool well ben again really appreciate your time man thank you so much for coming on pleasure thanks a lot All right, my friend, that does it for this week's episode with Ben Ashworth. Really hope you enjoyed it. My guy is such a wealth of knowledge. I really enjoyed connecting with him, learning more about his approach, and probably my favorite part of the show wasn't just talking about the assessments and coordination, but I really loved how he talked about strength and the role of strength in supporting the shoulder, and I think that's something we don't hear enough about. We don't hear enough people talking about not just strength, but rate of force development around the shoulder. So I know I was taking notes. I know I'm going to go back and check this one out a second time, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. And if you did, I got one or two small favors to ask. Number one, if you're not already subscribed to the show, go and do that right now. iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, Spotify, the Amazon Store, wherever you consume podcasts, go there right now. Hit the subscribe button so you know each and every week when a new episode drops. Second, if you're already subscribed, appreciate it. Go one step further. If you know an athlete, a coach, a fellow rehab professional who's dealing with shoulder issues or has a lot of clients that are dealing with shoulder issues, pass this episode along so they can learn more about Ben and all of the great work that he's doing. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. Love and appreciate you. And we'll be back next week with our next episode. Take care.